This is Dalio's Principles, a philosophical examination. The unofficial podcast companion for Ray Dalio's book, Principles. This podcast will deeply explore the book and principles. The podcast is hosted by Micah Bays and John Sextro. Micah has a PhD in philosophy and has taught numerous college philosophy courses, including The Meaning of Life, Ethics, and Reason and Argument. John shares his perspective from years of experience trying to live out Ray's principles in his life and work. I'm Micah Bays. And I'm John Sextro. And this is the virtual book club dedicated to Principles by Ray Dalio. Welcome, Micah. Thanks, John. Glad to be back. So this week we uh, were talking about chapter one. In our previous episode, we went over the introduction to the book. And we also went over an introduction to just the podcast in general and talked about what this is as a podcast. If you didn't listen to that, we encourage you to go back and check that out. Like we mentioned a moment ago, we're going to be talking about chapter one. And uh, the title of chapter one is Call to Adventure. And it's very much, what do you think, Micah, like a background, a little intro into when Ray was a kid, when Dalio was a kid, and and how he grew up, right? Sort of give us some foundation of his life. Yeah, just a nice autobiography yeah, of his early years. And uh, you know, a few subsequent chapters will be later on in life and getting more involved with his business and all of that. But here we just get a snapshot a bit into his uh, early life. Yeah, it seemed like uh, it, it helps us maybe understand some of his motivations and where he came from physically and, and metaphorically. So one of the things that I sort of took away as I was uh, finishing chapter one, and I've read this uh, chapter one probably four or five times, and I, I find something different every time I read it. But is um, this time it was really like, wow, this is just sort of... Um, and an any any day uh any town USA sort of upbringing for for a for a guy or for a person or for anyone really for that matter did you did that strike you that way yeah i mean there certainly was nothing remarkable about his childhood you know that i could pick out certainly nothing significantly different than my own um and uh so i guess we can all grow up to be billionaires yeah right that's that's the positive i mean he <laughs> He didn't have like a billionaire or millionaire family that he came from. He didn't have some sort of like uh, amazing schooling that he went through. As a matter of fact, he didn't care for school very much. Right. Yeah. Certainly his early childhood or, you know, his childhood, he didn't have, you know, any superior education. Uh, you know, he did go on to, I believe, Harvard later, which will come out. But, um, you know, at least as far as his trajectory to Harvard, right, he didn't require any kind of advanced you know, prep school uh, attendance that enabled him to get there. Yeah, that's right. He wasn't like in one of those secret society prep school kids that you're you're bound and determined to work at a hedge fund or work at a the stock stock market company or something like that. Become a a, a world banker or something. Right. And sadly, his mom passed away when he was 19, and it seemed like he was really close to his mom. So that had some sort of an impact on him, but he wasn't too close with his dad. And then after, of course, his mom passed away, he and his dad got closer together, which probably a good thing for him. Note to parents, if you have children uh, listening in on this while you're listening, uh, you might want to turn it off. Um, So the reason I say that is that Dalio was a poor student growing up. Don't let your kids find that out because they'll tell you it doesn't matter if they do well in school, I guess. Um, but yeah, he said he didn't do well in school and largely just said, you know, he wasn't interested in this, 
in the topics that his teachers were wanting him to learn. And so he just didn't have any interest. So he didn't do well. He shares a fact about himself that he wasn't good at like rote memorization of things uh, as a child. And he said that that continues to this day. Like he doesn't remember phone numbers or he's, he sort of phrased it as like things that are just arbitrarily assigned. Like if there's no rhyme or reason to it, he has a hard time remembering those sorts of things. So again, just, I think pointing to the fact that he's, he's not some sort of a super being or a superhero. He's a guy that, that did some things and it, it worked out and, I think he just wants to level set with everyone that uh, sort of if he could do it and he was just an average guy and I'm an average guy, then maybe I can improve and do some things too. Right. Yep. So it was, it was uh, funny to me that he was very motivated by it seemingly motivated by earning money outside of the home. He, he mentions how he'd be happy to do work uh, but it was out, outside of the home where he was getting paid and he, he really didn't want to do chores around the house. like cut the grass. He tells the story about cutting the grass or any of the other things. What did you think of, of his motivations there? I guess. Yeah. Uh, so one, I could definitely sympathize with him as far as not liking to do chores. I've never liked doing that. Dusting has got to be one of the worst activities you could do. Um, one of the things for me was just thinking about, yeah, what were his motivations as far as why wasn't he interested in doing chores, but he was you know, interested in doing work that, you know, a lot of kids wouldn't be concerned with doing. Right? As a kid, I didn't have many side jobs. I mean, I mowed my grandma's grass, but, you know, that was about it. Um, but, you know, he was very active in, you know, finding jobs that he could do and ways that he could make money as a kid. Um, and so, yeah, what was the motivation there? Um, was it just the money? Um, was it being able to do stuff outside the house? You know, would he have enjoyed the chores if he had been paid? We don't, I guess we don't know that, but that, that's what, that's what left me wondering. Was it, was it purely that he didn't like that type of work, uh, but was willing to do other types of work or really was it just that he was, he was motivated to work when there was an incentive in the form of money. Right. And, and I agree with you. Did your, did grandma pay you to cut the grass? She did. Okay. So you had that motivation. Right. Uh, I think. I had a job or two where someone now I didn't go out seeking opportunities to do work more than more times than not. It was somebody came to me and was like, Hey, you're a kid. You want to cut my grass? Um, and I would be like, yeah, I guess I'll cut your grass. What are you going to pay me? (laughs) But even when I, then when I did it, um, I wasn't real happy doing it and it, it didn't drive. Like I didn't have a drive to, to cut the grass, to earn the money because I, I didn't, I guess, have a lot of outlets to do things with money so much, I guess, as a kid. And I don't know what, what, uh, Dalio did with his money initially anyway, but he found something right. to do with his money. Didn't he? Yeah. When he was, um, working as a caddy on the golf course, he always heard the guys talking about the stock market. Right. And so from there he went on to start investing, um, but certainly before he was caddying, he wasn't investing, right? And so he didn't get the caddy job so that he could invest. He had an interest in earning the money for apparently some other reason. And uh, then just through his acquaintance with the golfers and they're talking about the stock market, he got interested in the stock market and made his first investments. Yeah, so he must have sort of, 
just we're reading between the lines here, but innately had uh, some sort of a, a desire to obtain money for something. Right. Maybe he had, maybe he had outlets to use it more than, more than I had access to where it was important to him to have money. And maybe it was also a fact of like in, in my upbringing, I didn't, I said I didn't have a lot of need for money. And that was probably because if we were going to do something, my parents always sort of gave me the money. Um, and maybe if with Dalio, with his father being a musician, I can't imagine that musicians were terribly wealthy in terms of the sort of musician he was. So, so maybe Dalio wanted the money so that he could do the sort of kid things that the, his friends were doing. Mm-hmm. There had to have been some motivation there other than just like the intrinsic having money opportunity. Right. right? Yeah. I also suspicion that um, just because later on he'll talk about how, you know, his current motivation isn't largely for money. We'll talk about that more. I'm sure in later podcasts, but I suspicion that, you know, for him, there's partly just maybe the intellectual aspect of it, of being able to figure out, you know, what's some ways I can make money? What, you know, what are some maybe novel ideas of ways to come up with money? And so just that activity, the intellectual activity of figuring things out, right? I think he's probably motivated by that to a large degree. Sure. And we know from having read the whole book multiple times, probably (laughs) that there's a, there, there are some deeper motivations there that we'll get into. So that's a deep tease for everyone. Uh, More to come on, on some of his motivations. But that, so that first investment that he got on the golf course, he had, he had some pocket money and uh, got motivated to invest in the stock market and went and bought a newspaper, I suppose, and found the cheapest stock he could find, Northeastern Airlines or something like that. Yeah. I think that's right. Northeastern, Northwestern. Something. Some direction. He, he put it, let it all ride on, on this airline. Yep. He said, yeah, because it was the only one he could buy. Right? Yeah. The only thing he could afford with. The money he had. It was the it was the one he could buy the most of, yep. I think was the the statement. Yep. So he went and bought that, and by some twist of fate, it worked out. The, the company was cheap because it was doing terrible, uh, but then some other airline acquired it, so it tripled or something like that, right? Yep. Yeah. So he said he was close to pretty much losing all of his money, but just. As a happenstance, right? Uh, coincidence, nothing, you know, because of his knowledge, it turned out to do really well. What do you think the difference in his life might have been if that would he would have just lost all that money? It's something fun to think about, right? Yep. Yeah, you wonder, like, would he have just stopped and said, well, this is a waste of my time. I have better things to do with my money than lose it. Um, I kind of suspicion maybe he would uh, have had maybe some more talks with uh, the guys he was caddying for. Maybe said, hey, uh, my stock didn't do so well. Why was that? Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he went that route to try and figure out what went wrong. But you definitely get the taste of success. And I don't know if you've ever gambled at all, but if you've, if you've ever gambled and the first time you go gambling, which the stock, let's face it, the stock market is just essentially gambling, except when Dalio does it, I think, because... <laughs> yeah. He's got something figured out. But for me, the stock market is gambling. Yeah. Just as much as playing blackjack is gambling. Um, That's why I'm an index index fund guy. Okay. (laughs) By the way, uh, Jack Bogle died this week, if you hadn't heard. He's the uh, founder of Vanguard, which is the kind of big index fund company uh, that really made index funds as big as they are today. Well, that's sad. Yeah. 
How old do you know how old he was? I believe 89. What? That's not too bad. That's a long, that's a pretty long life. I'll pretty take long. 89. Yeah. But anyway, if you, uh, if you gamble and you do really well the first time, it's like, it's like a hit. It's like that first fix you get and it just draws you back. And so if you sort of have a risk taker mentality and you have success that first time, it's like, Ooh, that, that was risky and it paid off. And so you go back again and again, and maybe, maybe then, you know, you start to lose, but you keep doing it because there's this oper- there's this chance that you'll, you'll beat the house. Yeah. So yeah. One thing I was going to say is, uh, I'm not like Dalio as far as being a risk taker. Uh, I am risk averse for sure. Uh, which would explain my index fund yep. uh, strategy. Gotcha. Um, Note it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, the one time I went to Vegas, I was in college and uh, I'm not, I'm not a gambler and, but I was figuring I was in Vegas. I should probably like, you know, play a few slots or something. And so we were there three days and my rule for myself was I'll have 10 bucks each day. I'll spend a total of 30 bucks in Vegas and I'll just see that as like my entertainment money. And, uh, you know, I think at one point I made 80 bucks, like on a quarter video poker machine thing. And, uh, but I wasn't too excited. Yeah, you know, I wasn't. I didn't make me want to start spending all my money because I know in the long run you're going to lose. So you're just too logical. That's what I tell myself. <laughs> <laughs> so gambling is is one of those risk reward things, and and it's a it can be attractive to people again because you you bet something and you can win something. But there's other there's other types, and investing is the same way. But there are other risk behaviors that I guess. You know, you don't really win money, but you sort of get some sort of an adrenaline high. And I have to think that if you're a person who is, it likes to take risks, it's not because you, you want to fail. It's because you want the, the triumph and the adrenaline hit from succeeding. But you know, you always know that there's a chance, at least you have to somehow know, because otherwise it's not a risk if you don't know you you can lose but you have to know that there's a there is also a downside possible right and so he's he's mentions in the first chapter that he's obviously we know he's into investing which is a risky sort of thing and scuba diving he talks a little bit about going scuba diving which is not the world's safest hobby so there's some risk involved there so right he seems to have he seems to have sort of a risk taking uh piece of that's something that's fundamentally about him. He likes to take risks. Anything even says that. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess, you know, question could be, you know, why does someone want to take risks? Like, so on the one hand, you might be willing to take high risks because there's some goal, some achievement, some thing you want. And, you know, the only way to get it is to put yourself out there to, you know, risk your resources or, um, your time or whatever, or your life or your life. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you think about people who do like uh cliff diving or uh, skydiving. Yeah. Or what's the one? Oh, so there's base jumping, but then there's the base jumping where you jump off a mountain and you have the wings and you can fly. Um, <laughs> of course. And it's very dangerous. People accidentally slam into the side of the mountain. Uh, so, you know, what what are they pursuing when they're taking that risk, right? So, on the one hand, it could be, hey, I want that feeling of flying, right? That's 
what I love and it just so happens that it's deadly and it's willing, you know, I'm willing to take the risk to experience that feeling of flying. But then I think some take it because of, as you said, right? The adrenaline hit that, yeah, sure. The flying's nice, but it's really the adrenaline that I want as a result of taking the risk, knowing that I could die, right? That's what drives the adrenaline hit. Cause you could have the feeling of flying in a safer environment, right? Like a roller coaster or, you know, one of those suspension type roller coasters, right? Mm-hmm. But for some people, apparently it's, it's the risk itself. Yeah. That really gets them. So Mike, if you put your professor hat on for a second here and, and thinking about this from a philosophical perspective, why, why would anybody take a risk, take risks like that? Um, when, when in just in all practicality to the race risk taking behavior seems like it might be bad for, for the, 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 uh, the continuation of, of the race. Right. And so it would seem to be something that maybe would sort of be driven out through evolution. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, one question is whether evolution can explain all of our behaviors, right. Are all of our behaviors consistent with, you know, survival of the fittest. Um, I think probably, well, I'm well, yeah, I think not. Um, and so there's a question about, well, what's important to this person? Like, what are they valuing? Um, and, you know, so Ray at one point says for him, he says, for me, great, great is better than terrible. And terrible is better than mediocre because terrible at least gives life flavor. Um, and so, right, some people in their view of life might say, hey, I'd rather much have a few moments of, you know, high adrenaline hits and, you know, maybe I die early, but at least the few moments I had were really great. So a question about that is, is there some rational standard about our choices in life? You know, is one way of life or one approach of life more rational than another way um, to where we might be able to say, well, you know, that person might've been motivated by, you know, the adrenaline hit. And so we're willing to take this, extreme risk, but actually wasn't a fully rational decision. Like, you know, it failed rational standards or something. Um, or is that, Hey, you know, there is no real rational standard as far as what you should want, what approach to life is better or more rational than another. Each person just gets to choose, you know, what life they leave or what life they lead. Um, so, uh, actually in my PhD, uh, my dissertation was focused in the area of reasons for action. Um, and I won't bore everyone with that today, but anyways, that was very much a question for me is, you know, in deciding what to do, which we can say largely on a grander scale, think about how to live. Are there more rational ways of living than others? We operate the podcast on the value for value model. We are entirely listener supported. If you enjoy the podcast and find value in the information and entertainment you receive, you can donate to the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Dalio's principles and click support this podcast. There are even more ways to support the show. You can dazzle all of your friends with information learned on the show and share the show with them on social media. 
Also, you can review us on iTunes. It'd be awesome if you blog about it or even talked about our podcast on your very own podcast. And you can always direct your friends to our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash Dalio's principles. And now back to the show. Did you, uh, and what was your, did you arrive at a conclusion? Is there a more rational way of living? Is, is one way of living more rational than another? Uh, I mean, I, just in your, in your conclusion, not that it's a universal truth, right? <laughs> well, uh, you know, in my conclusion, I, I do think there, there are, I do think there are more rational ways of living than others. Um, how certain am I about which ones are the irrational ways and which ones are not? Uh, there's some wiggle room. Uh, it's, it's just interesting with, um, that again, that, that risk taking, that risk taking behavior and that there's that, there are people still who like live on and are really motivated by the, the benefits that they achieve when they take a risk knowing full well that there's a downside and even experiencing downsides, getting injured in a risky behavior, you know, playing a, <clears throat> playing a, uh, playing a, a risky sport like football or some contact sport like that rugby, right? You can be injured. People get injured, but they come back and because they love it, they love the risk taking or they love the sport. Maybe it's less about taking the risk and more just about the love of the activity Right, uh, but there's inherently risk in the activity, and maybe they don't see the risk necessarily in the activity. I don't know, uh, but it's it's interesting to me that that people um, will in a in a non life threatening situation take risks like that too, um, and and then even when they experience a non life threatening risk, but it's still threatening to your well being, like. Dalio experience with deep tease into the book again, later in the book, we find out Dalio experiences some really hardships throughout his, throughout his investing career, but he still comes back to it. Right. And the fact that people still go back to those risk taking behaviors is um, interesting to me. Yeah. And yeah, I think one thing that's, you know, I've kind of thought about is just the risk that we take with cars every day. Right. I'd get in a car and I go and I drive 70 miles an hour to work and I drive 70 miles on the way home. And people die when they drive 70 miles an hour sometimes, right? And yet, apparently I've chosen that I'm willing to risk my life so that I can have a certain kind of lifestyle, right? I, I could choose to walk everywhere or you know, maybe take safer modes of transportation. Uh, but in order to get somewhere faster, I'm willing to risk my life. And is that rational? And so the extension of this again, which you mentioned that quote from Dalio about but be better to um, great is better than terrible. But uh, what is, what is it again? Oh yeah. So uh, I have it in front of me here. I don't, I don't memorize this stuff, but uh, for me, since Dalio says for me, great is better than terrible and terrible is better than mediocre because terrible at least gives life flavor. Now, when I first read this, I thought this seems kind of false, right? Um, yeah. How in the world is uh, terrible better than mediocre, right? Um, and so I think the key here to at least start to understand this is to notice that he seems to be talking about success in, I guess, business or success in life um, and the things that he sets out to do, right? He would rather set out to do great things 
um, and fail, right? That would be terrible, right? He sets out to succeed in great things, but he fails. And so that's terrible. And for him, that is better than just not trying great things and just live a mediocre life. Um, and so he's going to say with, as far as success goes, he'd rather have it be terrible because at least that way he says life has flavor. Um, but, but I wonder here how much failure would he really be willing to accept? Right. If everything he tried, he had significant failure on, would he really say that, that flavor is worth it, right? Or is perhaps he's saying this only because he's had large, a large degree of success and that's made up for any of the failures that he's had. Um, Cause again, right. He talks about life's flavor and I'm thinking, you know, if you're constantly failing life's favor is going to be pretty rotten, right? Um, Definitely. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, going with, of course, this is a metaphor here, but it gives life flavor. John, if I asked you, you know, would you like a really wonderful um, filet mignon that's been cooked perfectly? Or would you rather have, you know, a McDonald's cheeseburger? Or some three-week spoiled milk. Which one would you rather have? I'd rather have the filet mignon. All right. And what about the choice between the mediocre cheeseburger and the terrible milk? Yeah, I think that's an easy answer. It's the cheeseburger for me, for sure. <laughs> Which is seemingly the mediocre there, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, again, we might want to ask Dalio, what do you mean by life's flavor, right? But at least on this way of thinking about it, it seems wrong to think that you should, or you would want the terrible over the mediocre. So do you think that in general, and maybe specifically for Dalio in this case, a person can have a, a real aversion to fear of phobia of mediocrity? That certainly seems possible. Right. Um, yeah, so I mean, now we're going to maybe get into some psychology stuff, you know, <laughs> between what our uh, our statements are, you know, our public statements about ourselves or the way we think think about ourselves and the what you might say, what's really going on underneath the hood as far as what's actually motivating us, right? Because you seem to be proposing maybe, right? He's just afraid of mediocrity and that fear is so great that he's willing to risk you know, some failure because he knows, well, if I don't take great risks, I'm stuck with mediocrity. The only way to not be mediocre is to take great risks. Possible. Definitely possible. And then I I also wonder if it's, if it is just maybe he's motivated by that risk taking and and what he later calls adventure. I mean, the, 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 the title of the chapter is the call to adventure. And maybe it is really just he's he's more motivated by adventure. But then, you know, the the converse of that is is it or is it that fear of mediocrity or the fear of missing out the old, the, the old FOMO? Are you you have a fear of missing out? All right, uh, Micah. So I think that almost covers all of chapter one. But there's a really important there's a really important part seeming at the end. And and how does he how does Dalio leave the end of the first chapter? 
Yeah. So at the end, uh, you know, he had talked about his, uh, you know, he talked about, uh, investing and, uh, at the very end of the article or the chapter, at the very end of the chapter, Dalio says, almost everything I thought I knew about the markets was proven wrong. Uh, we'll see. This is a huge thing for Dalio. Um, something that's going to, I think, play out throughout much of his life. Uh, but, you know, he had this idea about how the markets worked and how you made money in the markets. And he realized pretty much everything he thought about the markets was false. And um, so one of the key questions for him, which we'll talk about later, he doesn't talk about in this chapter, but uh, is he started to question himself about, well, how do I know what's true? How do I get better at truth, finding the truth about things? Because he didn't want to make these same kind of mistakes again. And so, you know, I guess this could be our philosophical moment of the podcast, if you will. Um, it It's similar to uh, in the history of philosophy. Uh, in the roughly 17th century, there's what's called the, epi- the epistemological turn. Uh, That's easy for Micah to say. I can't say it. <laughs> Now you notice I couldn't even say it quite right the first time. <laughs> so, so epistemology is just a fancy word for you know the study of knowledge or theory of knowledge. What is it to know something? Right? What is it to have a justified belief? Like you know, what is it to have a good reason to believe that something is true? So, in yeah, roughly the 17th century, there's what's called the the epistemological turn, and Largely, it was motivated. The idea was so. If you want to say early in philosophy, in uh, pre AD, the three hundred BCs, um, there's a lot of philosophical questions about the nature of reality. What's the nature of causation? Uh, what's the good life, and so on. Uh, but these philosophical discussions, these debates, went on for almost two thousand years. And you know, you would think if you had a discussion about something for two thousand years, you would have come to the truth about it. And yet, it seemed like people were still significantly degree, disagreeing with one another about the answers to these deep questions. And so, the epistemological turn was, well, wait, we're debating these things; we're not coming to an answer. So maybe what we need to do is study knowledge. Maybe we need to figure out first what is it to know something, or what is it to be justified in believing something. So that then we can make good, rational decisions, um, and maybe we can even have certainty about it. So uh, the epistemological turn certainly was um, typified by Rene Descartes, and he had what's called this method of doubt, where he exam he would try to kind of examine all of his beliefs, or at least kind of all of his beliefs of certain categories, and figure out could he be wrong about him. And if he could, then he would just thought, all right, I'll do away with those beliefs. Because um, his idea was, you know, if you think about a Jenga, uh, the Jenga game. Where right? you pull the little bricks out and the tower falls over that one. Right. Yeah. So now imagine you have a tower and the first layer of Jenga, uh, you know, the first layer of your tower is built shoddily, right? Um, it's very wobbly. Well, anything you build on top of that is itself going to be wobbly. So if you want your tower to stand really firm, 
you want a firm basis, uh, a firm base. And so Descartes, his goal was to get to the foundation of his beliefs, figure out what could he know for certain. And then based on that, only add or come to have new beliefs if they could be certain because they're based on those other beliefs of his more foundational beliefs. They're also certain. Um, and so one thing we see with Dalio here is, you know, he's going to ask himself, okay, I've got all of these beliefs about the market, but most of them are wrong. So now he's going to want to try and weed out his false beliefs from his true beliefs. And so here, you know, I think one of the questions is going to be what, what were the causes of his false beliefs? And so you might think, you know, what are the ways in which you might have false beliefs? So one, uh, you could have, you might say incorrect data. Uh, maybe you had certain numbers or beliefs about companies and their, uh, profit. Well, why did you believe they had those numbers? Probably from research you're doing, maybe some books or some magazine articles. Um, so you could have incorrect data. Uh, I guess incorrect data, you might even include your own intuitions about how the market's going to work and say, oh, well, you know, given what's going on in the market, it seems like this is what's going to happen. Right? That you might say is an incorrect data point. Um, but it, you can also talk about incorrect calculations, right? Maybe he had the correct data, but when he was sorting through all that data and trying to figure out what sense to make of all that data, he just drew some wrong conclusions. Um, and so once you find you have these false beliefs, the question is how do you figure out which ones are true and which ones are false? Um, and we'll get to that later. Do you think that this was the, this was Dalio's epistemological turn? Yes. Yeah. Um, seems like, you know, he went along for a while felt pretty confident in his belief making abilities, right? Coming to good decisions. And then he realized, ah, things weren't as certain as I thought they were. Life sort of punched him in the face. That's right. The stock, (laughs) the stock market sort of punched him in the face and said, Hey, you don't, you don't know quite as much as you thought you did. That's right. And so he had to go on a, I guess, sort of a quest for what, what do I really know? what's true about what I know, like yep. you explained. Yep. Wow. Philosophy. It's deep stuff. It is. Thousands and, th- and thousands of years of, of a dedicated study to it. And we still don't know what, what's true maybe and what makes us happy and all of those things. It's a, it's a constant search. For yes. Those. Yep. Okay. So we have some final points to offer for people to points to ponder. We're calling them. And uh, I'll give you my first point to ponder for chapter one. And that is thinking about what motivates you. So Dalio talks a lot about what motivates him. We find out more about what motivates him. It's money. It's maybe taking risk or it, maybe it's not money, but maybe it's just the pursuit of the money. Like he says, like Micah said, we find out later that it's not so much the money that seems to motivate him, but yet the pursuit of the success of getting the money. So what is, what motivates you? figuring out for yourself what is true about what motivates you. Is it fame? Is it money? Uh, Is it the pursuit of money? Is it charity, love, faith, other things like that? So something to think about what motivates you. 
You want to give yours, Micah? Yeah. Uh, so another question, uh, just to, again, a point to ponder. Uh, what is something significant that you have believed to be true that you found out to be false? Um, so just to throw something out there, I'll put significant in quotes here. Uh, but uh, my mom, when she was a kid, she believed in Santa Claus. Uh, oh, note to parents, don't have children listening to this. We um, already gave a, we already gave that on the don't study or don't don't pay attention in school thing. True, yeah, so it should be covered. Yeah. Um so my mom uh believed in Santa Claus growing up and well as a kid and one day she found out at school right kids were telling her that Santa Claus wasn't real and so she went home and asked her mom and said, "You know, is it true that there's no Santa Claus?" and her mom, my grandmother said, "Yes, that's true." kind of nodded her head and and my mom was like, does that mean there's not an Easter bunny either? And it was just crushed. Um, and because of that, I was not raised to believe in Santa Claus. Um, but anyways, that might be something significant that you uh, believe to be true, but you found out to be false. So the question for you all is, what is that for you? What was that something significant? And it's probably going to be something more significant than Santa Claus. I don't know. I mean, that's pretty significant. That's a pretty significant one, especially when you think about then uh, the the repercussions on your mom, on probably your grandmother, and then of course on you, right? So those those are significant. Those those revelations can be quite significant. Definitely. Uh, and I would say, you know, I I don't tell my children about Santa Claus, um, but because of uh, other people, they do believe in Santa Claus. So whenever I'm asked about Santa Claus by them, I just say, well, that's a mom question. Sure. Go talk to mom. Yep. <laughs> it's always a, that's always a good out for a dad. Yep. Okay. Our last point to ponder was one that I had again, and it's what are the fundamental aspects of who you are and how might they affect you and your goals and aspirations? Dalio was, is a risk taker. So what are some of the fundamental things about you that you know about yourself or that you can find out about yourself as you're considering yourself as you're reading through this book and think about, yeah, that's, um, I'm, I'm risk averse or, um, I'm really, I, I really want to do good in the world. And so those things motivate fundamentally, um, are at your core and they, they motivate you and knowing about those things, answering some of these questions thinking about what's true for you, those could be very helpful in figuring out what make you happy in life and successful and all of whatever, however you define success. So those are our points to ponder at the end of chapter one. And in the next, next episode, we'll be covering chapter two. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going on our subreddit, Dalio's Principles at reddit.com. The subreddit is Dalio's Principles, all one word. Join us to interact with a community of like-minded individuals. 